There we go. Father, we uh, thank you so much, Lord, for uh, your word. Lord, I ask that, that you, would, you would bring illumination, Lord, to your word, that you would help us to understand it, that you would apply it to our hearts, Lord, that we would see you uh, more clearly. Lord, that our hearts would long for you, that as the song that the band played, Lord, that we would know the joy of full salvation. I pray that for us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. For me, uh, most of you know that uh, sports has had uh, a place in my life, and uh, one of the things that's interesting about sports is sort of this cycle of hype that happens every year. Every year, and especially if you're a Seattle sports fan, you, you know this, like a lot of Seattle sports have not been good, except for maybe the Seahawks in recent years, but um, I've suffered through long, terrible years of Mariners and, and uh, even Sonics, and we don't have a team anymore, but uh, every year is sort of this season of hope, the preseason, right? You have the, the new free agents have been acquired. You have the, the star rookies that are coming on the scene, and, and there's a lot of hype that goes into the preseason, and, 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 and I buy into that hype. I think maybe, maybe this is the year that we finally, that everything comes together in such a way uh, as to get the victory. Maybe this is the year that they will live up to the hype and actually achieve what I hope they will achieve. And of course, that I would find some, some satisfaction and some deep meaning within that every year. And then what happens inevitably is reality sets in. The team is not as good as I thought. Or even when the team is as good as we thought, like the celebration is short-lived. Inevitably, there's this cycle of hype and this subsequent disappointment. And I think as human beings, we are prone to fall into this cycle of hype and disappointment. Your thing might not be sports. It might be gadgets, right? The, The latest iPhone, the latest MacBook, the latest PC, right? Your, your thing might be jobs, the latest job, the newest promotion, politics, the latest star politician, the, the next president. Maybe it's relationships, the next person that's going to finally, finally fulfill your needs. We're prone to this cycle of hype and then disappointment. And in this context, we're seeing uh, that, that people are finally starting to hype up Jesus. And to give you a little background, what, what just happened, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus told Lazarus, you can't be dead anymore. And that was a big thing. It was noteworthy, right? If, if you were talking about how your day went, uh, that would have made the list of highlights, right? So now the crowds finally are starting to say, okay, Jesus might be up to something. 
Jesus might be someone we want to pay attention to. And, 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 and Jesus has already been demonstrating this all throughout, but he saves his best trick, actually his second best trick, for last. He's got one more trick up his sleeve later, but that's what we're going to get to. So he's got these crowds of people, and they're hyping Jesus, Jesus up. They're finally starting to believe that Jesus is the next best thing, the next best hope. Only as we're going to read, Jesus will have none of it. He wants nothing to do with our hype. The, the title of this message this morning is, Jesus doesn't live up to the hype. He supersedes it. Jesus does not live up to the hype. He supersedes it. And I'm going to break that down as we go through. There's three key points, three ways in which Jesus rejects the hype. The first is Jesus chooses to arrive according to God's plan rather than according to our expectations. The second is Jesus chooses to destroy his platform rather than build it. And the third is Jesus chooses to be our spiritual savior rather than a political savior. Those are the three ways in which Jesus rejects the hype. First point, Jesus chooses to arrive according to God's plan rather than according to our expectations. I'm going to start reading in verse 12 and read through verse 19. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify, this is also why the crowd met him. Because they had heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus chooses to arrive according to God's plan rather than according to our expectations. Jesus here has his viral moment. He has this moment where he goes public and broad in a big way. He's got all the crowds coming to him. He's got all the attention that you could ever want if your purpose was to come in and be the king. And yet, how does he arrive? It's very interesting. It says he arrives on a donkey. Now, when you think of like a king or royalty arriving, like in, in today's world, what would you think of? What would you think of the vehicle that a king would come in on? I don't know about you. I would think of 
a jet, a private jet, Air Force One. I would think of, in cars, I would think of Rolls-Royce or a Bentley. Like, I would think of the most luxurious, well-armored, guarded form of transportation you could think of. Right? Fitting, fit for a king. And just to be clear, a donkey was not that. Like, if you didn't know. Like, you think, oh, well, back then, maybe that was pretty cool. No, it actually wasn't. That's what a servant would use. Right? They would have, they had carriages, they had horse-drawn carriages, they had other forms of transportation, which if you were wealthy, if you were a leader, a political leader, you would use that. You wouldn't come in on a donkey. Now, why does Jesus come in on a donkey? Because Jesus doesn't choose to arrive according to our expectations. He chooses to arrive according to plan. Whose plan? God's plan. That's why it says it is written. It is written, notice in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. And he quotes from Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9, if we look at that, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus comes. He chooses to arrive according to plan, God's plan. Now, this is significant. This is where we, we, we get into something called prophecy, And it's really important understanding who Jesus is. Jesus came, and he was intent to fulfill what was prophesied about him. Now, I want to take a step back and just kind of unpack prophecy for a second. There's there's three key elements of prophecy uh, that are important for it to be prophecy. Number one, prophecy is future. Number two, prophecy is specific. And number three, prophecy is unbounded. And I'll explain these things. If I (coughs) said to you, um, there will be a man who will be here, and he will have a beard, you know, dark hair and a beard, and he's going to have glasses on, he's going to wear a collared shirt with stripes, pattern, and he's going to be sitting in the sound booth. Is that prophecy? No. It's not future. He's here. That's just stating the obvious. Prophecy is necessarily future. Prophecy must be specific. If I said, Eric, I I am going to prophesy that sometime in the next week you're going to talk to someone. Is that prophecy? No. It's future. I am stating something that's future, but I am also stating something that's totally unremarkable. Right? Like everyone is probably going to talk to someone next week. So it must be specific. It must be remarkable. And thirdly, prophecy must be unbounded. And this is, this is one I want to pause for a second. What do I mean? Prophecy must be unbounded. If I said, if I take a coin and I flip and I say, I'm going to prophesy that it's going to be heads or tails. Right? Is that prophecy? It's not. Because it's too bounded. It's too tightly bounded. It's just two options. It's one of two options. I can, pre- I can make a prediction about it, but no one's going to say I'm making a prophecy about it. Like, I got a 50% chance of making that right. 
So prophecy is future, it is specific, and it is unbounded, meaning it's not just choosing one of a limited set of options. Does that make sense? So when we come to Zechariah chapter 9, let's look at this. Is the prophecy future? Zechariah chapter 9, the book of Zechariah was written 500, over 500 years before Jesus arrived on the scene. Over 500 years before it happened. It is definitely a future prophecy. Secondly, is it specific? Is it specific? It reads, behold, your king is coming to you. And he's speaking to Israel. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. It's very specific. He mentions the specific type of transportation. He mentions who this person is. He's, he's the king coming to Israel, and, <coughs> and he's bringing salvation. Thirdly, is it unbounded? Absolutely. This, like no one, would just, no one would guess that. No one would expect that. And that's what makes it more remarkable. Because if you think of kings, if you think of royalty, if you think of political leaders, you don't think of them coming humbly necessarily. You think of them coming in pomp and circumstance. You think of them coming in the most luxurious manner, in the most powerful manner possible. And Jesus does the opposite. So when you see a prophecy like that, that is so unexpected, it is very much unbounded. It's, you wouldn't expect it. And so that makes it all the more remarkable when it actually does happen. Jesus came. It says, it is written that I would come in on a donkey. Now, now you might say, well, Jesus knew about that scripture, right? He could have looked at that and said, okay, well, I'm just going to self-fulfill it. In fact, that is what Jesus is doing. He is, he's a very aware of all the prophecies about him. But there's an aspect which you cannot self-fulfill here. Or at least you cannot self, self-fulfill if you aren't sovereign and in control of everything. And it's this. Anyone can get a donkey and come into Jerusalem. Anyone can get a donkey and come into Jerusalem and say, I'm the king, I'm the king, yippee yay yay Right? Anyone could do that. But what's different about Jesus? Everyone else is saying, you're the king. All the crowds are saying, Hosanna, here is the king of Israel. And they're laying palm branches before, which was a symbol of victory. You cannot stage that. Does that make sense? That has to be orchestrated divinely. And so it becomes remarkable because only Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. Now, that prophecy, this prophecy alone is not the silver bullet of faith. Like, it's remarkable. It causes you to pause. It causes you to consider and think. But Jesus doesn't just fulfill one prophecy. When you look at Scripture, Jesus fulfills over 300 prophecies. And when you begin to add them up all together, it becomes very hard to ignore the person of Jesus. His disciples did not understand it at the time, but they understood it after. After he was risen from the dead, after he was glorified, they remembered and they thought back, you know what? 
what he did was connected to what we read about in our childhood. And because of that, it gave them some confidence about who he was. Because not everything, not every prophecy has already been fulfilled. Which means we still need to grab hold of something to trust in what God will do in the future. That in between him rising from the dead, there is still a future that we look forward to of God coming back and restoring all things. We know that all things aren't fully restored yet. There's a future grace that's coming. And because Jesus meets the, he fulfills prophecy, we can trust that God has identified the right person who is the Savior. Prophecy is for us. It's for our faith. It's for our confidence. It's for our hope that Jesus is who he says he is, and that the hope that he says we have, we have it surely. That's the point of prophecy. Jesus chooses to arrive according to God's plan, which is his prophetic divine um, uh, direction. He says what will be, and it comes to pass 100% of the time. And we can look at it, like, we could, we could have, if we could have been there, we would have seen Zechariah writing it down, and we'd be like, that's weird. What king's going to come on a donkey? I don't know if I can believe you. And then it happens. And then he raises, and then they look back, and they go, oh, what? God was, God was right. And if he had to come as we expect kings to come, it would have been unremarkable. We would have missed it completely. That's what people do. So God chooses specifically to do something in a remarkable way that we would not expect to point to God identifying Jesus as the Savior. Point number two. Jesus chooses to destroy his platform rather than build it. He continues to reject the hype. He rejects the hype of his arrival, and now he's rejecting the hype of his building platform. Let me start reading in verse 20, 20 through 26. Some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And here is it's an interesting moment where Jesus clearly has a certain level of attention. And then you get this story where these Greeks, now they're probably not necessarily ethnically Greek, it was a word that sort of meant anyone who's not Jewish. So Gentiles, these were people, Gentiles who were not Jewish, who, who somehow respected God, the God of Israel. 
They were god fears. It's another term that's used in Scripture. And, the, and they come, they say, they, they ask Philip, we want to see Jesus. And I just picture, like, this political connotation. Like, if you think of it like a campaign um, a campaign organization. So Jesus is the candidate, and you've got, like, his disciples who are all, like, the experts, right? Like, Jesus, here's your opportunity. We've got, now your message can go out. Like, Jesus, you said that you have sheep of another sheep pen that you intend to bring in the fold. Jesus, I think this is your opportunity. Let's talk to these people. Let's spread your message. Let's, let's make it go global. And Jesus says, I'll have none of it. He refuses. Now, he doesn't refuse. Um, he's, not, he's not angry about it. Like, he, he's not rude about it. But he, he basically redirects and says, my hour has come. Verse, uh, <coughs> verse 23. His response is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you remember... Back when Jesus turned water into wine, his, his mom asked Jesus, do something about it. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Right? So there was a time when his hour was not imminent, and now he's saying, my hour is imminent. And what Jesus is referring to clearly is his coming death. In other words, Jesus is saying that the reason why I've come is to die, and that is what I'm focused on. I don't have time to be distracted from my focus. He's not saying that the Gentiles will never see him. He's saying that what I need to do is more important so that all Gentiles will see me. He's focused. And so in a sense, he's destroying his platform because he knows that and ultimately that's the only way he's going to build his platform is by destroying it. And he gives this principle And we've looked at this before, that unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it produces no fruit. And it's a pretty clear metaphor that he's using. He is the seed that is dying. He needs to die to produce more fruit. We know in agriculture, that's just the way it works. If if what you look at as living does not die, you don't get more fruit. And he extends this principle, and he says this, Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will gain it for eternal life. Now, what does that mean? What does it it mean to love your life in such a way that you'll lose it? Think of the things in life that you can't live without. Think of the things in life that you hype up. Like, I can't wait for this, or I can't wait for that. What do you trust in? And I think what Jesus is getting at is the things in life that you trust in, whether it be money, whether it be relationships, whether it be success or achievement, like the things in life that... We believe in our hearts, I need to have that to have life. To the extent that we hold on to them, Jesus is saying, that's the extent that we lose life. We lose it. 
It's working off that principle of, or that cycle of hype and disappointment. The more that we hype something up, the more disappointed that we are. And, And the reason for the disappointment is because life itself is broken. Life itself, money and relationships and achievement are not bad things, but they make for poor saviors. And that's the point. Money, relationships, achievement, whatever else you want to put in that you like about life, that you love about life, are not bad things, but they make for poor saviors. And what Jesus is saying, you don't need more of what you hype up. You need a savior because the world and the life is broken. And Jesus has come to fix the brokenness. He's talking about his own self. His, his body is going to be sacrificed for the world. As you think about what do you love in life? What do you cherish? What do you believe will get you to your version of heaven, to your version of bliss? Jesus is saying to the extent that you hold on to it is the extent that you lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, and what does Jesus mean by hate your life? He's not saying I hate life. I want you to just hate all of life, like period. What he's saying is, in comparison to me, the things that you love in life are nothing compared to him. And if you understand that principle, then there is everlasting life. Jesus says it in another way. Uh, elsewhere, he says, uh, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added. It's a question of what you seek first. That's really what this principle is about. It's not that the other things are bad. It's just, who do you seek first? Do we seek God first, or do we seek things first? And that's his point. Jesus won't fail us. Money, relationships, success, they will all fail us at some level. Right? If money never failed us, then those who are rich would always be 100% happy. But we know that that's not true. If we think of relationships, well, maybe that's better than money. But even relationships fail us. Why? Because people fail us. Right? Even people we love. There's times where I fail Stephanie. Right? Often. Doesn't mean I don't love her. It just means I'm sinful. Right? And there's times where Stephanie fails me. It doesn't mean that she doesn't love me. It just means that she's sinful. But if I place all of my hope in her, I will be sorely disappointed and vice versa. If she places all her hope in me, she will be disappointed. And and all of these disappointments are meant to point us back to some need that we have for someone who will never disappoint. And Jesus is saying, that person is me. He's the only one who doesn't disappoint. He's the only one who doesn't fail us ever. Jesus rejects the hype of salvation. Or sorry, Jesus rejects the hype of, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Moving to the next point. Jesus rejects the hype of salvation by choosing to be our spiritual savior rather than our political savior. This is the last point. Jesus chooses to be our spiritual savior rather than a political one. 
Let me read verses uh, 27 through 33. (coughs) Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came for me, uh, this, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Jesus is at this stage where all the tension is on him. And I remember thinking back to when Barack Obama was elected president, when he won the election. And I remember that was a very meaningful moment for me um, to see someone, my color, become president of the United States. And, and I remember all of the excitement, all of the euphoria. I remember him speaking and hearing the message of change and of hope and, and really all of the hype. And it was exciting. And it was meaningful, particularly being a, a man of color, to see that, okay, this is some progress. And yet... After eight years, and and this is not to talk about President Barack Obama being a bad president or a good president. Don't hear me arguing one way or another. But I am saying he wasn't a savior. And, and And the hype exceeded his output. Whether you liked him or whether you didn't like him. And that's true for every political leader. The hype always exceeds the output. What this crowd wants is another ruler in line with the ones they've had prior. They're just looking for the next president, the next king, the one who will make Israel great again. That's who they're searching for. And Jesus, if he was about being that person, this is his moment to get on the platform and say, we're going to bring change. We're going to bring hope. We're going to take over Rome. We're going to reclaim for Israel what you want. This is his moment to do that if he's trying to be that kind of king. But Jesus is not trying to be a political savior. You need to understand that. He's not trying to live up to our hype. He is superseding it, which means he is supplanting it. He is replacing it. He is destroying the cycle of hype and disappointment and replacing it with something solid that will last. And why? Why don't we need a political savior? Because he says this in verse 32, 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The problem 
is spiritual, not political. The problem, what he has come to do is disarm the ruler of the world. Now, the ruler of the world is not human. He's not talking about the Roman emperor. He's not talking about any political leader. He's talking about a spiritual enemy that we have, and his name is Satan. And he he was the one who was in the garden, who deceived Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit, to disobey God, and thereby introduce sin into the world. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And therefore, through Adam, death reigned in the world. Jesus has come to fix that problem. And Jesus says, I need to cast out the ruler of the world. And how does he do that? He says, I must lift myself up. I must be lifted up. And he's referring to the cross. That through the cross, he's able to cast out the ruler of the world. Why? Because through the cross, he's able to pay for the wages of sin, which is death. We needed someone. We need someone big enough, strong enough, righteous enough to be able to pay for not just one person's sin, but the sin of the entire world. And Jesus is that man because he is the only God-man. He pays for the sins of the world in his death. And when, de- when the uh, wages of sin are paid for, then death has no more reign. And therefore, the ruler of this world is judged, and he's cast out. He's still here, but his days are numbered. His power has been removed in the person of Jesus. Jesus came to save us spiritually. And in, this, in our spiritual salvation, the political structures of this world will crumble before the feet of Jesus. This is why Jesus came, and this is why Jesus is so focused. And I love it, the response of the people. Now you can start to see them understanding that Jesus is not going to just live up to their hype. Verse 34, the people respond. Then the crowd replied to them, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? They, 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 they start to understand that Jesus is saying he's going to die, and they don't want that. They, it, doesn't, it doesn't compute because they're looking at their scriptures, and they see that the Messiah is going to live forever, and they're right. But what they also ignore is that the Messiah will die too. Both and. They're not mutually exclusive. They're both true. They miss that. They want another political leader. They want a strong man. They want a military leader to come in and conquer Rome. And Jesus says, I will not be that person. And Jesus responds, not directly, but indirectly. He says this. The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light... Believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. Jesus said this and then went away and hid from them. If you're trying to be king of Israel, Jesus does everything wrong, seemingly. He comes in on a donkey. He turns away. He he refuses influence. 
he gets up and his, his major plan for world transformation is to say, I'm going to die. And then he goes away and he hides. He hides from us. But not before saying, this is the thing that's important. And this is the thing that's important for us. Do we believe in Jesus? Do we, are, are we, if we're there in the audience and we're looking at Jesus and he's on the stage and he says his bit and then he walks off and he hides, are we waiting for the next person to get on stage? Well, Jesus didn't really tickle my ears enough. Who's next? Or will we follow Jesus off stage to his death? Will we lose our lives for his sake? Will we lose our lives because Jesus is who we need? Not just who we want, it's who we need for salvation, for life. Do we believe? Jesus doesn't live up to the hype, he supersedes it. Hype equals more of the same. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you more of the same. I'm going to give you something altogether different. I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to give you my blood for you to fix what really needs to be fixed, your sin. And if we believe that and we let go of the things in life that we think will save us, whether it's the Seahawks or the Sonics or an iPhone or relationships or, what, or a new president or whatever it is, let go of it. That's called repentance and trust that Jesus fills the gap. Jesus meets our need. Jesus cleanses us of our sins and gives us eternal life. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I thank you so much. that your son did not live up to the hype. He didn't live up to our hype. He's not just the next in line of many kings, Lord, that we hype up and then ultimately fail us. But Lord, you've given us yourself. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand and help us to know and experience, Lord, the victory that we have in you. To really believe that sin and death were defeated at the cross. Lord, that you loved us so much that you gave your son to die for us. Help us to believe that. Help us to walk in, in the truth and knowledge of, of what that means for us practically day by, day by day as we are lured in as Christmas season comes and the next trinket that we feel like we need, Lord, the next self-help plan that will get us to the place we think we need to be at, Lord, help us just to see all those things as more of the same. Lord, we want more of you. Lord, would you shine brightly in the midst of Lord, all the temptations in the world, all the worldly ways of thinking we can save ourselves. Lord, would you stand out in the midst of that and would you help us, Lord, to believe and cling to you and trust in you. We thank you and praise you and pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Um, at this time, we also, every week we celebrate communion, and it is uh, a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice for us, his death for our sins. And if you believe, if this is something you believe in, you've come to trust that Jesus has died for you, then, then I, I welcome you to partake of 